What is the most resilient parasite? Bacteria? A virus? An intestinal worm? Uh, what Mr. Cobb is trying to say. An idea. Resilient, highly contagious. Once an idea has taken hold of the brain, it's almost impossible to eradicate. An idea that is fully formed, fully understood, that sticks. Right in there. Peace be upon you. One of the most fascinating things in nature is studying how um, parasites are able to take over a host and literally control its mind, its motivation, its fears to be able to do things for the benefit of the parasite at the expense, detriment, and possible destruction of the host. And um, one of the uh, interesting cases, and I, I don't know why that most parasites are uh, wasps, but a, a wasp will lay an egg inside the abdomen of a specific spider and will hijack its mind to build its web in a formation that will be stronger to support the cocoon. And once the larva comes out of the spider, it will continue to feed on the spider and use its web for its cocoon. In another case, a green-eyed wasp will lay an egg inside the abdomen of a, a ladybug. And the egg will feed off the, the, the ladybug but avoid the major organs as to not kill the ladybug. And during this whole time, the mind of the ladybug has been taken over and it stays completely immobilized until the, uh, the larva hatches from the abdomen of the ladybug and you would think that would be the end of the story but it's not the ladybug will continue to stand guard on top of this defenseless larva for weeks until the larva forms a cocoon in between the legs of the ladybug and then comes out as an adult wasp and the aspect is this ladybug was giving literally its flesh and blood and its protection and everything at the detriment of itself for the benefit of this intruder this parasite and you see numerous cases another one is uh, toxoplasmosis uh, this is a parasite that resides in the uh, uh, gut of uh, a cats and uh, if a mouse comes in contact with this parasite what it does is it turns off the fear receptors of the mouse when it sees a cat and you'll see these videos of a mouse literally approaching the cat as if to play and it's to fulfill the life cycle of the parasite because the hope is that the cat will eat the mouse and the parasite will go back into the gut of the cat, reproduce, and start the cycle again. And the fact that a parasite can have such influence uh, to a host is absolutely mind-boggling. But there's a parasite that affects the human being that is more ubiquitous and harder to fend off than anything else that we've seen. And that parasite is when Satan infects a idolatrous idea into the mind of a human being and what satan does is that he entices the human being with his voice gives them a suggestion and we see this in the example of adam and eve that god gave adam and eve specific instructions not to approach that tree and satan came and implanted an idea into the minds of adam and eve convincing them that the reason they weren't allowed to approach this tree was because if they did they would have had unending kingship and knowledge and all these things and this is what Satan does, is that he hypnotizes his constituents to buy into their idea. In 7179, the subtitle reads, Satan hypnotizes his constituents. It reads, we have committed to hell multitudes of jinns and humans. They have minds with which they do not understand. 
eyes with which they do not see, ears with which they do not hear. They are like animals. No, they are far worse. They are totally unaware. And this is the reality is when a parasite takes a residence inside a host, it takes over the mind of the host. It makes the host think that its motivations, its desires is what the host chooses to do. And we think that we're immutable to uh, uh, to suggestion that, oh, no, you know, it's not going to happen to me. I'm smarter than that, this and that. And we know that that's not true. That's the reason advertisers spend billions and billions of dollars to convince us of a narrative, to convince us to buy their products, to convince us to watch their shows. And some of this is completely benign. And there is a sinister aspect to this. And I'm actually going to link to a video from uh, Ben Shapiro talking about how Hollywood is implanting these uh, blasphemous ideas into the the population. Um, But I wanted to show another example. There's a mentalist in um, England. His name is Darren Brown. And I highly suggest to watch one of his videos. I'm going to link to it in the uh, show notes. And what he does is he brings a person into a room. And everything in the room is perfectly staged for this purpose. And what he does is he asks the person, what is it that you want for a gift? You can have anything in the world. What is it that you want the most? And um, he goes through and basically uh, uh, discusses with this person. And then the person says, you know what I want? A red bike. And sure enough, you know, he opens up a box and there's a red bike. And Darren Brown tells him, hey, look into your wallet. Remember the other day I had you write down what it is that you wanted for a gift? And he opens up his wallet and he sees the card and it says a leather jacket. And he's in absolute denial that he wrote a leather jacket. And he believes to his bottom of his soul that he wanted that red bike. And what he doesn't realize is that Darren Brown manipulated him. Everything in the room, all the word choices that he used, everything he did in his body language, uh, his communication was designed to trick this person to think that he wants a red bike. And it seems unreal, but you have to watch this video. And um, this is the aspect is that we can easily be manipulated. And again, some of this stuff is just benign. It doesn't matter. But when Satan does it, it's strictly for our own detriment. No different than when the wasp lays the egg inside the, the ladybug. And if we don't have our defenses up, we could be at the mercy of Satan and fall into his trap. And Satan wants nothing more than to get us all on the path of hell, uh, to follow him in hell with the hope that maybe God shows him a little bit of mercy. Um <clears throat> And there's two predominant kind of ideas that Satan is going to implant into the uh, uh, the minds of the human being. The first one is egotistical ideas. And we've done several podcasts on that topic and uh, I'm not going to go into that one. The second one is in regards to doubt. Satan is going to implant doubt into the minds of potential believers to have them stray away from the Quran and from God and from God's message. And this is the one that I want to focus on. And there's certain things that we need to be absolutely certain about in regards to our faith. One is that there is no other God beside God. In 3.18 it reads, God bears witness that there is no other God except He, and so do the angels and those who possess knowledge. Truthfully and equitably, He is the absolute God. There is no God but He, the Almighty, most wise. So this is the foundation of our belief, is that there is the oneness of God, the absoluteness of God, that He has no partners, that there is no other God beside Him. This we have to be unshakable in regards to. The second one is the belief in the day of judgment. That on one day after we die, 
every single soul is going to be resurrected and held accountable for all the righteous works and evil deeds that they've done in this world. And in 22.7 it says, And the hour is coming, no doubt about it, and that God resurrects those who are in the graves. In 40.59 it reads, Most certainly the hour, day of judgment is coming, no doubt about it, but most people do not believe. In 13.2 it reads, God is the one who raised the heavens without pillars that you can see, then assumed all authority. He committed the sun and the moon, each running in its orbit for a predetermined period. He controls all things and explains the revelations that you may attain certainty about meeting your Lord. And this is something we strive for, to attain certainty that one day we are going to be resurrected and we're going to be held accountable. The third aspect is the, the belief, the absolute belief that we remove all doubt that the revelations given to us are the absolute word of God. And in 7.2 it says, This uh, scripture has been revealed to you. You shall not harbor doubt about it in your heart, that you may warn with it, and to provide a reminder for the believers. 35.40 Say, Consider the idols you have set up beside God. Show me, what on earth have they created? Do they own any partnership in the heaven? Have we given them a book wherein there is no doubt? Indeed, what the transgressors promise one another is no more than an illusion. And obviously, if you have these pillars, you believe in uh, there is no other God beside God, you believe in Judgment Day, you believe that the uh, Quran is the absolute word of God and you follow it to the T, there's a lot of derivative ideas that are derived from this. But this is the core. These are the things that we have to be unshakable about. But the reality is there's going to be moments in our life, and it's a given, we're going to have doubt. There is no problem with having doubt or wanting to have reassurances from God. The aspect is how do we deal with it when we have these doubts, when we have this uncertainty, when we you know, question our faith. And we see examples of God's messengers when, uh, and uh, people who are close to God's messengers, how they behaved and how they addressed doubt. In 2260, we read about Abraham. It says, every believer needs assurances. Abraham said, my Lord, show me how you have, uh, you revived the dead. He said, do you not believe? He said, yes, but I wish to reassure my heart. He said, take four birds, study their marks, place a piece of each bird on top of a hill, then call them to you. They will come to you in a hurry. You should know that God is almighty, most wise. So here's Abraham, someone who God calls his close friend, and um, he wants to reassure his heart. He just has a question of how does God resurrect the dead? And God provided him the reassurances for that. And you see that Abraham didn't harbor this doubt. He didn't basically build on top of it uh, to steer him away. He addressed the problem right up front. He poses it to God and God provided the answer. The other one is in regards to Jesus and the disciples in 5.1.12 through 1.14. It says, Recall that the disciples said, O Jesus, Son of Mary, can your Lord send down to us a feast from the sky? He said, You should reverence God if you are believers. They said, We wish to eat from it and to reassure our hearts and to know for sure that you have told us the truth. We will serve as witnesses thereof. So you see here, they're saying, look, we want to make sure that what you told us is the truth, and we need that reassurance. And it continues, said Jesus, Son of Mary, our God, our Lord, send down to us a feast from the sky. Let it bring plenty for each and every one of us, and a sign from you. Provide for us, you are the best provider. God said, I am sending it down. Anyone among you who disbelieves after this, 
I will punish him as I never punished anyone else. So God is providing solutions to these problems. And it tells us in the Quran, it reads, O you who believe, do not ask about matters which if revealed to you prematurely would hurt you. If you ask about them in the light of the Quran, they will become obvious to you. God has deliberately overlooked them. God is forgiver, clement. So what we do is we ask God and God provides us with the answer, assuming that we're sincere. Another example is in regards to uh, uh, the difference between a submitter and a believer. And uh, we read this in 49.14 because some people, they believe certainty is outside of the realm of possibilities for a believer. And the answer is that it's not. It's just it requires striving and um, real hard work and dedication and sincerity to achieve. And in 49.14, God explains it to us. As the Arab said, we are moments, believers say, you have not believed. What you should say is we are Muslims, submitters. Until belief is established in your hearts, if you obey God and the messenger, he will not put any of your works to waste. God is forgiver, most merciful. Moments, believers, are those who believe in God and his messenger, then attain a status of having no doubt whatsoever and strive with their money and their lives in the cause of God. These are the truthful ones. Say, are you informing God about, uh, about your religion? God knows everything in the heavens and the earth. God is omniscient. And we see, again, there's other examples of human beings. You know, these aren't just prophets and messengers attaining certainty. And 2.1.18 says, those who possess no knowledge say, if only God could speak to us or some miracle could come to us, others before them have uttered similar utterances. Their minds are similar. We do manifest the miracles for those who have attained certainty. And in 550 it reads, Is it the law of the days of ignorance that they seek to uphold? Whose law is better than God's for those who have attained certainty? And 675 says, We showed Abraham the marvels of the heavens and earth and blessed him with certainty. So even though Abraham had certainty, this was something that God has put into his heart, he still needed reassurances. Because the reality is, we need to constantly be reminded. One of the uh, tricks Satan does is that he makes us forget. You know, you think about all the blessings you have, everything you have to be appreciative, and Satan's going to get inside your mind and make you focus on what you think you, you're missing and negate all these amazing blessings that God has given us. So <clears throat> what are some of the things that Satan's going to whisper to us uh, to try to deceive us, to try to foster doubt inside us? One of the first ones is to change the meaning of God's message. God tells us in the Quran that the bulk of the Quran is very straightforward. There are allegorical verses, but the majority of it is just straightforward. In 370 says, he sent down to you this scripture containing straightforward verses, which constitute the essence of the scripture, as well as multiple meaning or allegorical verses. Those who harbor doubts in their hearts will pursue the multiple meaning verses to create confusion and to extricate a certain meaning. None knows the true meaning thereof except God and those well-founded in knowledge. They say, we believe in this. All of it comes from our Lord. Only those who possess intelligence will take heed. And I've seen this numerous times where people, they have an agenda and they will stick to some verse and pull it out of context to try to meet their uh, understanding. And a simple example is in the Quran, gambling alcohol intoxicants these are all prohibited in 590 it says oh you who believe intoxicants gambling in the altars of idols and the games of chance are abominations of the devil you shall avoid them that you may succeed 
right? God is going above, not saying just don't use them. It's saying avoid them. This is the same language that's used when God told Adam and Eve. It says, it does not say do not eat from this tree. It says you shall not approach this tree. And God is telling us to do the same. So it's very strong language. But what happens is people gravitate towards some other verses. And the other one is in 443 where it says, Oh, you believe, do not observe your contact per salat while intoxicated. And what they do is they say, look, in this verse it says, all I have to do is not perform my contact per salat while I'm intoxicated. Meaning that I can be intoxicated when I'm not doing my salat. And you realize what's funny is the following verse, it reads, Have you noted those who received a portion of the scripture and how they choose to stray and wish that you stray from the path? So God is using very clear-cut language that alcohol, gambling, the altars of idols, intoxicants, these things are prohibited in the most strong language. Yet someone's going to find this verse and say, well, maybe I can you know, be intoxicated as long as I'm not doing my contact prayer. And this is what it means when Satan whispers doubt into the minds of someone. For them to go and dig and try to find some strange meaning to justify Something that they want to make, you know, uh, lawful when God is telling us it's not lawful. The other one is putting doubt in us in regards to the day of judgment um, or the fact that we're going to be held accountable. In 2766, in fact, their knowledge concerning the hereafter is confused. In fact, they harbor doubts about it. In fact, they're totally heedless thereof. And the reality is if someone doesn't believe in the day of judgment, they don't believe that with absolute certainty they're going to be held accountable, then they're more likely to perform, you know, fall into sin because you think you can get away with it. And this is one of the realities. If you think you can get away with a crime, you know, the likeliness of you choosing to conduct that crime increases. Not to say that you'll go and, you know, rob a bank or anything, but it's one of those things that if it's a crime that you want to commit, and your only concern is the fact that you might get caught, if someone doesn't believe that they're going to get caught, they're more likely to perform it. The other aspect of what Satan does uh, to inflict the human being with a parasitic idea is to fear other than God. And this is one of the tools that Satan uses. In 375, it says, It is the devil's system to instill fear into his subjects. Do not fear them and fear me instead if you are believers. And 552 reads, you will see those who harbor doubt in their hearts hasten to join them, saying, we fear lest we may be defeated. May God bring victory or condemn uh, from him, command from him that causes them to regret their secret thoughts. And what this is in reference to is at the time of war, some of the supposed believers were so terrified of their uh, uh, the enemy camp that they were willing <laughs> To change sides just to avoid that fear. And if you have fear of anyone other than God, then this is a sign that the devil is putting doubt into your heart. If you fear the lack of provisions, if you fear your boss, if you fear your uh, professor, if you fear anything other than God, then that's showing that you believe there's a source other than God. One of the definitions of idol worship is to believe anyone other than God can harm or benefit you. So... This is one of the tactics that Satan uses to send us astray. The other one, and this is the most common, is to just revert from our religion. In 2252, it reads, We did not send before you any messenger nor a prophet without having the devil interfere with his wishes. God then nullifies what the devil has done. God perfects his revelations. God is omniscient, most wise. 
So this is what this, Satan does, is that he wants you to fall off the path, to interfere with God's wishes. And uh, we see the example of this in 2253 and 54 when it continues. Says, he thus sets up the devil's scheme as a test for those who harbor doubts in their hearts and those whose hearts are hardened. The wicked must remain with the opposition. Those who are blessed with knowledge will recognize the truth from your Lord, then believe in it, and their hearts will readily accept it. Most assuredly, God does guide. God guides the believers in the right path. As for those who disbelieve, they will continue to harbor doubts until the hour comes to them suddenly, or until the retribution of a terrible day comes to them. So people who do not believe in the hereafter, who have doubt, who are constantly fostering and you know watering that doubt, um, they're destined to uh, fall off the path. And you think about it, doubt, imagine it being a seed. And each time that you're reflecting on it and you're building on it and you're building a case around it, all you're doing is you're watering that seed until it takes root. No different than the uh, uh, wasp that infects the egg inside the ladybug. If the ladybug could have a choice between feeding that egg or getting rid of it, which one do you think it would do? And it's the same thing. Satan's going to put this idea inside the mind of the human being. And we have a choice. We can either accept that idea or we can reject the idea. What's fascinating is once we think that the idea came from us, and that's what Satan's going to do. He's going to convince you that this is your idea. We take ownership to that. And something fascinating happens is when you believe you own something, all of a sudden your value for that object goes up. And they've done experiments. They would give people a mug and say, okay, what's the value of this mug? And they'd give an arbitrary price. Then they said, okay, you own this mug. How much would you sell it for? And all of a sudden they start increasing their prices. And the aspect is when you believe you own something, all of a sudden your ego causes you to think that you are associated with that idea, that opinion. That's the reason that people... When you bash an idea that someone has or an opinion that someone has, they take personal offense to that. And it's because they've associated themselves with that idea. And this is how Satan's going to get us. He's going to make us think that we came up with this. We were so clever. It was our idea. And once we do that, we give it root. We give it uh, shelter. We give it water. That idea is going to grow on its own until it overwhelms us. In 3.154, we read more about this. This is after a setback, he sent down upon you peaceful slumber that pacified some of you. Others among you were selfishly concerned about themselves. They harbored thoughts about God that were not right. The same thoughts they had harbored during the days of ignorance. Thus, they said, is anything up to us? Say, everything's up to God. They concealed inside themselves what they did not reveal to you. They said, it was up to us. None of us would have been killed in this battle. Say, had you stayed in your homes, those destined to be killed would have crawled into their deathbeds. God thus puts you to the test to bring out your true convictions and to test what's in your hearts. God is fully aware of the innermost thoughts. And this is the reality. is Anything that we're harboring, God is going to bring it out. The purpose of this life is to bring out our true convictions. And there's nothing we can do to get away from that. In 47.29, it says that those who harbor doubts in their hearts think that God will not bring out their evil thoughts. So if we have thoughts that are contrary to the Quran, that contradict the oneness of God, that contradict the fact that on one day we're going to be resurrected and held accountable for everything we've done in this world, you can guarantee that those thoughts are going to become exposed because the purpose of this world is to bring out our true convictions. So that being said, again, we, we aim for certainty. 
by far. But we're going to have doubt. We're going to have uncertainty. The question is, how do we deal with it? Is it something that we foster, we grow, uh, we, we cling to, or is it something that we overcome? So the question is, how do we overcome doubt and find certainty? And the very simple answer, the very simple answer is by worshiping God alone. And 1599 says, and worship your Lord in order to attain certainty. Certainty is a gift that God gives human beings who are sincere, devoted to God alone. It's not something that we get because we're clever. Like, oh, I just studied so much and now I'm certain. No, this is a blessing from God because you see people who are PhDs, you know, uh, academics, just incredibly bright, intelligent in the worldly sense, but completely oblivious to God's message. So it's not about our skill set in that sense. It's about a blessing that God gives us. And when we worship God, we're showing our sincerity. And one of the greatest gifts that God can give us is the aspect of certainty, to have absolutely no doubt that God is doing absolutely everything, that God is in control, that God is controlling every single interaction in your life. Every provision you receive, everything that's taken away from you is perfectly calculated by God and no one else. And 2186 says, when my servants ask you about me, I'm always near. I answer their prayers when they pray to me. The people shall respond to me and believe in me in order to be guided. So this is reality. We implore God. We call on God. We uh, ask God in the sense of supplications if we have doubt to help us resolve this doubt, to get rid of this doubt. God is going to answer our prayers. The other aspect is if we have any doubt, one of the great blessings that God provided us that says it's greater than 10 times any miracle uh, that's been given to the human race is the mathematical miracle of the Quran. Two of the functions of the mathematical miracle of the Quran in 7431, it reads, to strengthen the faith of the faithful and to remove all traces of doubt from the hearts of Christians, Jews, as well as the believers. That if you have any doubt about God's word, about the truth, study the mathematical miracle of the Quran, and you'll see that without a doubt that this, this scripture is the absolute word of God. Every letter, every word, every verse, every chapter, it's all the absolute word of God. And when you study the mathematical miracle, you can feel certain about that. No different than when the disciples asked Jesus to provide a feast from the sky. This is greater than that because this is not limited to time and space. Anyone, anywhere, speaking any language can verify the mathematical miracle of the Quran and come to a complete conviction that this is the word of God, that this was not created by a human being any stretch of the imagination. The third thing we can do to uh, remove doubt and find certainty is to be honest with ourselves. And it's easy for us to sugarcoat things, to justify things when we know that they're wrong. And this is one of the, the biggest problems we have as human beings, that we can convince ourselves of anything, especially when it has to do with painting ourselves in a good light, to justifying our actions. And we have to be neutral when we look at ourselves, our thoughts, our actions, and ask, is this the action of someone who's a believer? And you can say, you know, these wristbands that uh, people used to wear, it said, what would Jesus do? It's the same thing. You have to ask, what would a righteous person do? How would a righteous person behave in this situation? How would they react to this thought? And 4135 says, you shall not bear false witness. Oh, you who believe, you shall be absolutely equitable and observe God when you serve as witnesses, even against yourselves or your parents or your relatives, whether the accuser is rich or poor, God takes care of both. Therefore, 
Do not be biased by your personal wishes. If you deviate or disregard this commandment, then God is fully cognizant of everything you do. O you believe, you shall believe in God and his messenger and the scripture he has revealed through his messenger and the scripture he has revealed before that. Anyone who refuses to believe in God and his angels and his scriptures and his messengers in the last day has indeed strayed far astray. So we have to be honest when we deal with ourselves to look at ourselves, our decisions, our actions in a neutral light. And if you have any doubt, because sometimes we're going to get into a situation where we might just not be sure. We don't know what's the right response or how best to behave or what the appropriate action is. God tells us in those situations to consult. Talk to someone you trust. Talk to someone else who's a believer, who you believe has high moral integrity, and ask them, you know, what would you do in this situation? What's the proper uh, way to conduct myself? What's the uh, proper action I should take? And the hope is that when you're not relying on your own um uh, your own, you know, kind of a, a biased judgment. And we're all biased, you know, especially when we deal with ourselves. Uh, and you look, you go and seek help from other people to consult with them. You know, hopefully by God's leave, by acting out what God is recommending for us, we can come to the right uh, solution. In 4238 says they respond to the Lord by observing the contact person a lot. Their affairs are decided after due consultation among themselves. And from our provisions to them, they give to charity. So this is the recipe, is that we observe the contact prayers, meaning we worship God alone, and we consult when we have any questions. You know, we ask one another, we get feedback, uh, we try to be honest with ourselves, and um, we do righteous work. Because when we're sincere, we do righteous works due to things that please God. God can bless us by removing our doubt, by giving us certainty. And I just want to end with a quote. This is from uh, Professor uh, Richard Feynman. And just love this quote. I know I reference it a bunch, but it says, The first principle is that you must not fool yourself, and you're the easiest person to fool. And that's the reality. Is when a parasite takes over a host, the host thinks that the actions, the behaviors, the motivations it's doing, it's for its own benefit, when realistically it's for its own destruction. So God willing, we're going to end there. I'm going to play uh, uh, the clip from uh, Ben Shapiro in regards to how Hollywood hijacks the mind of the uh, the people. And uh, until next time, peace and God bless. If you guys got comments, questions, or suggestions, uh, hit us up at crontalk at gmail.com. And uh, God bless. Imagine a group of activists so powerful that they could beam their propaganda directly into your brain. Now also imagine that they're so sophisticated they actually get you to pay them to do it. Unfortunately, you don't have to imagine it. It's real. It's Hollywood. As big as the internet has become, Hollywood, and here I'm talking specifically about television, is still king. Not only does it reach hundreds of millions of people with its messaging, it embeds that messaging in seemingly innocuous stories. Stories that distract us from the hardships of daily life. Stories that make us feel good, compassionate, and decent. We watch TV, in other words, because we like it. And just as Americans didn't think much about the carcinogens in the cigarettes they smoked for decades, most Americans don't think much about the toxic politics in the television they watch. But those who create that content do. They spin out hour after hour of slickly produced left-wing propaganda, and they give themselves awards for doing it. They applaud each other's courage, even though all their friends think exactly as they do. I spoke with nearly 100 members of the Hollywood community when I wrote my book, Primetime Propaganda, and many of them openly admitted they inserted social justice messages into their shows. How they do it is both clever and effective. Hollywood writers, producers, directors, actors create characters we keep wanting to spend time with. 
then have those characters act in ways most of us would judge wrong. Then, in effect, they ask us a question. Isn't it really okay that Rachel from Friends decided to have a baby without first marrying Ross? After all, you like Ross, and you like Rachel. How can what they do be bad? It hasn't always been this way. For decades, Hollywood promoted traditional American values. That changed, as did so much else in the late 1960s and 70s, when Hollywood stopped celebrating American values and started transforming them. For example, in the early 1970s, abortion was a hotly contested issue. A year before the Roe v. Wade Supreme Court case, the top-rated TV sitcom Maud featured a storyline in which the title character of the show has an abortion. The LA Times described it as a watershed moment in TV history. Why? Well, because it removed the stigma of abortion. Millions of Americans sitting in their living rooms saw a beloved character do something they did not approve of, and they felt sympathy. Something similar happened in the early 2000s. Vice President Joe Biden was right when he said that Will and Grace had a major impact on how Americans think about same-sex marriage. Before the hit NBC show, though most Americans had a live-and-let-live attitude toward private sexual behavior, few supported the idea of men marrying men or women marrying women. But seeing the charming and funny Will Truman live his life week after week paved the way for a much wider acceptance of same-sex marriage. Current shows like Orange is the New Black and Transparent are trying to affect the same change on the issue of transgenderism. You may think these are all good things, or that some are and some aren't. That's not my point. My point is that Hollywood has had a tremendous influence on our culture, and that influence has been all to the left side of the political spectrum. And it isn't just social issues. Chevy Chase liked to boast that he helped Jimmy Carter defeat Gerald Ford in 1976. He may be right. Week after week on Saturday Night Live, Chase portrayed Ford, probably the most athletic president in American history, as a bumbling, uncoordinated idiot. In the early 2000s, Comedy Central had a show, That's My Bush, that openly mocked the 43rd president. And of course, Hollywood despises Donald Trump. From crime dramas to the late night comedy shows, he's relentlessly ridiculed. Somehow, Hollywood managed to take an eight-year hiatus from mocking presidents during the Obama years. But maybe that's just a coincidence. All of this programming has an effect. Scientific studies suggest that watching TV acts like a habit-forming drug. According to the market research firm Childwise, teenage boys spend eight hours per day in front of screens, much of it consuming Hollywood propaganda. Dedicated religious parents might expose their children to two hours a week of religious instruction. Hands-on parents might spend 30 minutes a day discussing essential values with their kids. Hollywood gets up to 40 hours a week. Every week. By all means, enjoy television. I do. But remember, the people making TV don't merely want to entertain you. They want to influence you. They want you to think like they think. And unless you're aware of what they're trying to do, chances are you will. I'm Ben Shapiro, editor of The Daily Wire for Prager University.